0: Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Sess Show. I'm your host, Tori. I haven't done one of these shows in a very long time. You know, I feel like it's a very long time. And I think it's important that we begin talking about the current events that are happening right now across the world that are important to us. I have spent a good deal over the past few years providing insight on the dynamic overseas. And the reason that I say this is because Turkey is extremely, extremely important. And the dynamics specifically between Turkey and Russia are not good. Iran has stepped in as well. The U.S. is trying to step in to divert Iran. We have the Armenians that obviously Turkey conducted genocide against them and therefore uh, this is a very big concern for many, of course, since Turkey is supporting a nation at war with Armenia at the time. Russia has been stepping into that as well. So has it on. Today's show is going to give you a little bit of shift and focus so you can understand everything we've been talking about for years.
1: Kristen joins us live from Baku. Welcome to the program. So tell us why are these talks being held now?
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me in your program. Uh, I think uh, no need to expect uh, very serious results from the Putin-Aliev, Pashinyan meeting held in Sochi today, uh, because this meeting is only intended uh, to maintain the Russia's influence mechanism in the region and is a response to the United States and Europe. Because uh, before that, uh, meetings uh, between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia were held in United States and in Europe, and official Washington and the European Union are uh, trying to conduct a mediation mission. And of course, this is against the Russia's uh, interest in the South Caucasus. And in this regard, uh, Vladimir Putin is uh, trying to show that Russia can be uh, the only mediator in this conflict and by meeting with. Aliyev and Pashinyan from time to time. But uh, it is not in the interest, uh, to be honest, of Russia to solve this conflict once and for all, because if a peace agreement, peace treaty uh, is signed between Azerbaijan and Armenia, it means that there will be no need for Russian peacekeeping forces to stay in the region. Uh, And then Russia's influence will be reduced to a minimum. For this reason, Russia is trying to prolong this negotiation process Mm -hmm. as much as possible and maintain the status quo. On the other hand, the anti-Russian policy followed by the Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan in recent months uh, is also negatively received by Vladimir Putin. And therefore, by supporting the revanches and pro-Russian opposition in Armenia, the offshore Kremlin is actually trying to remove Nikol Pashinyan from power, as well as abstracting the peace negotiation between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And Sorry, Amma, just to be clear, uh, that,
1: that's a very big and bold comment you've said there. The Kremlin is trying to remove Pashinyan from power?
2: Yes, because of uh, Pashinyan's recent uh, pro-West policy and very uh, intensive contacts with Washington and European Union, and it is negatively uh, received by Kremlin. And yesterday, a large protest uh, action was held in Karabakh in the city of Mm Hankandy against Azerbaijan, as well as against Nikol Pashinyan, and the Armenians in Karabakh declared that uh, they do not want to live uh, within the Azerbaijan Republic and that they want Russian troops to remain in Karabakh. And this action is actually an event supported by Russia and shows once again that the Kremlin is playing uh, double games in the region. But in any case, uh, the goal of Azerbaijan does not change. The Azerbaijan side demands the fulfillment of the requirements of the apartheid agreement date November 10, 2020. And according to this agreement, all uh, military units belonging to Armenia should be completely removed from the uh, territories of Azerbaijan and Karabakh and the surrounding areas should be completely under the control of Azerbaijan arm.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for bringing us uh, uh, these details and analysis. That was Ahmed Shahid of uh, Political Analyst joining us there live from Baku. Appreciate it.
0: According to Turkish news, Armenia should stop what they're doing and they should just give up their land even though they've been fighting for eons. See, that's perspective. They're telling you what they want, rather than what's right. None of them are aware of what's right, as this has been going on for thousands of years. But Then you're gonna tell me, why do we care what's going on in Kafkaso, in that region? Well, because something else happened too. Watch this.
3: You're about to see a powerful explosion. A massive drone attack, say the Russians, accusing Ukraine of, they claim, damaging their fleet of warships in the Crimean port of Sevastopol. While these are murky waters, what is clearer, Crimea is extremely symbolic and a strategic site for President Vladimir Putin. It was illegally annexed by Russia from Ukraine back in 2014. This has undoubtedly hit a nerve in Moscow.
4: Today at 4.20 a.m., the Kyiv regime carried out a terrorist attack on Black Sea fleet ships and civilian vessels on the outer and inner harbors of the Sevastopol base station. The attack involved nine unmanned aerial vehicles and seven autonomous marine drones. Because of the measures taken by the Black Sea fleet's ships, all the aerial targets were destroyed.
3: As Russia claimed they began this counterattack from the skies above the port. While Ukraine have not admitted any involvement, as they rarely do on claims made by Russian authorities in Crimea, this video appears to show an unmanned naval vessel. Its magnitude has, however, been felt from all sides, as the diplomatic war of words intensified. Without providing evidence, Russia then singled out British troops, accusing them of being involved not only in today, but in last month's attack on the Nord Stream gas pipelines.
4: According to available information, representatives of this unit of the British Navy took part in the planning, provision and implementation of a terrorist attack in the Baltic Sea on September 26th this year, blowing up the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 gas pipelines.
0: Drones. Where have we heard that before? Well, do you remember a while back in the Middle East by Yemen? where there was an explosion of an oil refinery with a drone, and they tried to blame Iran. There was a reason that they were trying to blame Iran, but it turned out it was a Turkish drone. Turkey, like I told you before, has very good capabilities in unmanned vehicles, aerial vehicles, right? And um, their UAVs are way up there. Not only that, so is Iran. Iran has been developing their technology in weapon, more so in the drone sphere. And so Russia was just hit by a drone, that was a Turkish drone, that was purchased with U.S. federal tax dollars, and it hit their bridge. Now you're going to see how all of this comes into focus. All right, so let's start. Let's begin with Turkey, okay? So it's important for us to understand that Turkish drones are reportedly violating Iran's airspace. They were actually detected and hit by electronic warfare systems. <clears throat> it was an Iranian journalist, kal Muzen, that had actually posted a video on his um, telegram handle on September 19th that allegedly showed a Turkish drone being observed on the open source flight tracking platform, Flight Radar 24, entering Iranian airspace from Turkey. The report suggests that the drone was struck down by massive you know, electronic warfare attack, electronic attack from Iranian focus base on the sharp um, change in its altitude and flight speed as it was observed on flight radar 24. Now, aside from the Turkish Bay Rockstar, the TB2, that was reportedly observed approaching the Iranian border, um, it was probably for reconnaissance. Now, the commonality between Iran and Turkey is that both both of the countries Are emerging as drone superpowers okay and they have made uh, drones during the Nagamo Karabash conflict and supplied the drones to Armenia the Iranians did so in August Iran hosted a military tournament uh, falcon hunting which was 70 70 military personnel from Russia Belarus and Armenia and they took part in the competition to see their drones in regards to surveillance, how accurate they are in artillery fire, and everything. And so, Iran has uh, pretty much um, uh, obtained a contract with Russia to provide uh, Iranian-made
5: UAVs.
0: And that was shortly after their demonstration. Now, Russia, according to US DoD officials said, that the Mahadra six and the Shahed series, which could be used to conduct strikes and e warfare targeting foreign, you know, assets, has a maximum range of about 200 kilometers, whereas the Turkish, you know, TB2 that is supposedly all the range has a full range of 300 kilometers, and this is why I had said that that was a Turkish drone that struck, you know, down. Um, down by yemen that time because of the capabilities and um you know the ability for this you know drone to actually uh, go the distance keep in mind that was then but the now is a lot different there is a shahed series that iran has put together and it can be airborne the drone for like 27 hours. And that includes the Shahed uh, 129 and 191 drones. Um, and that's all based on satellite imagery that people have taken and you could find most of those videos online. And they show Russian officials viewing those two drones at um, Iran's Kashan airbase And the Shahed 191 and Shahed 129 can reportedly travel super farther than Turkey's supposed TB2 because their range is like 450 kilometers. Even up to 2,000 are some of the claims. Now that could be wild, but not far-fetched. This is 2022. However, the endurance of the TB2 is what exceeds you know, the distance, because the TB2 has a lot of capabilities that are interesting. So what we are seeing is that Iran and Turkey are competitors in a very aggressive and developing market. Remember, Turkey was posing drones to China. China was trying to steal their tech. You know, Turkey is very secretive. Iran is even more secretive. Considering that, you know, they have been isolated by the majority of the nations around the world. And you know, when you isolate a nation and you cause it distress, it will develop weapons to defend itself. And they're very proud. So it's quite a dangerous um, fine line that's being uh, stepped here. So I, I don't know that a lot of people knew that the drone industry is so popping in <laughs> between Iran and Turkey, but they are leaders in uh, this area, and Iran is a leader in this space, so I believe it's really important to take note of the competitiveness between Iran and Turkey, remembering that Turkey lives off of the energy supplies of Iran, but Turkey was also there providing banking access to Iran, when the Western world had cut them off. So the dynamic is almost two-toned, friend or enemy. And now that we bring Azerbaijan and Armenian to focus, that becomes a lot clearer and more so the role of Russia.
6: Uh, We assess that Iranian personnel, Iranian military personnel were on
7: the ground in Crimea and assisted Russia in these operations. The US along with other Western nations alleged that Iranian military staff had been deployed in Crimea and that Russia is using Iranian-made drones to attack Ukraine. Now, In response, the West slapped sanctions on Tehran. Are the Western nations afraid of Iran's military deal with Russia? Why is the US feeling insecure? I'm Shivan Channa, let's get to the point. Now, Western nations believe that if Iran is supplying drones to Russia, then it is violating the UN Security Council resolution that endorses the 2015 nuclear deal involving Iran. Under the resolution, Iran is under a conventional arms embargo. But that ended in October 2020. Iran till now has denied supplying drones to Russia. In diplomatic fashion, Iran asserts that it is free to do so if it wants but insists that it hasn't sold the drones to russia now western diplomats on the other hand say that the restrictions on iran on conventional arms sales are still valid and remain valid till october 2023 which curtail the export of military systems such as drones iran is betting that by aiding russia in its time of need it will get many things in return. With Russia's support, Iran can pressure Washington to offer concessions for the revival of its 2015 nuclear deal with world powers. Now, That is one bargain the US does not want to indulge in. Iran is keen to strengthen strategic relations with Russia as there are fears that an emerging US-backed Arab-Israeli bloc may shift the Middle East balance of power further away from Iran. US is already going through a rough patch with Saudi Arabia over Saudi's oil production cuts, which will benefit Russia. There are growing concerns for the US that Saudi Arabia has colluded with Russia and China to weaponize oil prices against America and the West. Now with Iran and Russia getting closer, America's oil concerns will only
8: deepen. Uh, America
7: For the West, the most impactful strategy remains, finding creative ways to remind Iran and Saudi Arabia that Russia is first and foremost their competitor, leveraging how Russia is offering larger volumes of discounted crude to traditional Saudi and Iranian markets in China and Asia more widely. But giving US a black eye seems to be a larger purpose for the feuding Islamic nations. And Russia seems to be the glue that binds them. Do you feel Iran is doing anything wrong by engaging in military trade with Russia? Let us know in the comments.
1: The Ministry of Defense has accused the Russian government of peddling false claims after Moscow said UK forces helped with a drone attack on Russian fleets near the Crimean port of Sevastopol. Russian authorities say one warship was damaged in the attack overnight. Ukraine has not yet acknowledged the incident. They also claimed that British forces were involved in the explosions which damaged the Nord Stream gas pipelines last month. Well, responding to all the claims, the MOD said Moscow was resorting to invented stories to detract from their disastrous handling of the illegal invasion of Ukraine. Well, our correspondent in Kiev, Hugo Bechega, has more on that attack on Sevastopol.
9: The Ukrainians rarely comment on uh, attacks uh, and incidents in Crimea. What we had was a statement from the Russian Defense Ministry saying uh, that uh, this attack happened uh, early uh, this morning and was carried out by underwater and aerial drones. And They said that the target was uh, the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet uh, in uh, Sevastopol. And a mine sweeper had sustained minor damage. So again, the Ukrainians haven't commented on these claims uh, but we've seen uh, in recent weeks that Crimea has seen a number of explosions attacks uh, I think uh, the most recent was the explosion that hit the Crimea uh, bridge and that obviously led to a massive response by Russia targeting uh, cities across Ukraine and Crimea was uh, annexed by Russia in 2014 the Ukrainians have been saying that they want to uh, take back all territory that's under Russian occupation including Crimea Crimea, which has uh, special significance for President Putin.
1: Russia says it's suspending participation in a UN brokered agreement that allows grain exports from Ukraine in response to that drone attack in Crimea. Russia's foreign ministry said Moscow can no longer guarantee the safety of civilian ships involved in moving Ukrainian grain exports via the Black Sea. The United Nations is in contact with Russian authorities, calling the Black Sea Grain Initiative a critical. Humanitarian effort. A critical humanitarian effort. Yet
0: now you'll have to think drones, grain, the Black Sea, Russia, Turkey, Iran, Azerbaijan, Armenia. It's all coming together. This is where Turkey is overstepping. While Russia and Turkey claim to have really good relations, Russia backs Armenia, and that falls back to a Christian nation. That's basically it. And surprise, surprise, Iran also backs Armenia. Actually, Iran, well, you'll see in another clip that I have for you. But this is a big deal. The fact that Turkey is stepping in to facilitate exports when Russia wants to punish Ukraine for allowing the West to bomb them with drones that are Turkish. See, it's not that complicated. It makes 100% sense
3: these are wars of the
0: titans It's almost like game of thrones globally
3: and in a stormy exchange the uk's ministry of defense responded this is about as on the nose as it gets in military speak accusing russia of resorting to peddling false claims of an epic scale to detract from what they called their disastrous handling of the illegal invasion of ukraine more uncharted waters now lie ahead Well, Ukraine has accused Moscow of engaging in yet more primitive blackmail. Our foreign affairs correspondent Porik O'Brien is in Dnipro. Porik.
10: Jackie, some of the more reliable pro-Russian military telegram channels are reporting today that one of the ships that was struck in what many was talking about in the report there that one of those ships was called the Admiral Makarov. Now that's the flagship of the Russian fleet in the Black Sea. Those uh, telegram channels are also saying that its radar system was damaged. That's significant on two fronts. First of all, it's the flagship, and the last flagship, the Moscovo, sank famously in April. But in terms of the radar systems, the Russians launch cruise missiles from the Admiral Makarov. Cruise missiles that we've seen wreak devastation on the civilian infrastructure of Ukraine recently. So that is why this is potentially significant militarily. Beyond the battlefield, if you like, though, it has other significance. You spoke about the grain deal earlier. Remember, this was a deal brokered between Turkey and uh, brokered by Turkey and the UN, I should say, back in July. It allowed grain to be exported back out of Ukrainian ports like Odessa. Remember, the World Food Program buys something like half of its grain from Ukraine. So Russia has officially said it's withdrawing from that deal. There were problems with the deal already, but this is an official announcement that they are withdrawing. And that is a big issue for particularly developing countries. Expect in the weeks and months to come more talk, warning of food crises and potentially famine in developing countries.
11: right, thanks very much
10: it started
6: with piles of trash covering lebanon street
12: mounting piles of rubbish festering in the
6: heat the smell is revolting and it's come to this
12: skinhead
13: deadhead everybody gone bad situation aggravation everybody allegation in the streets on the news
14: everybody dog food landfill garbage everybody gone bad all
13: i want
0: So here's where we get into Lebanon. So Lebanon, a historic deal was actually signed four days ago. And what's incredible is, is that today, four days later, well Michel Aoun, which is Lebanon's president, vacated the presidential palace with no successor in line to replace him. The country is struggling to recover from a year long financial crisis. So, he addressed his supporters outside of the Bada um, presidential palace yesterday in Beirut. Uh, and the 89 year old Christian leader of Lebanon, who took office in 2016, said the Middle East country was entering a new chapter which requires huge efforts. Al Jazeera's um, Ali Hashem, um, who was at who was at Babda, said that the people of the country had mixed feelings over own um, six-year rule. Now, his supporters said he was an unlucky president. Like, you know, the implosion, all of these things happened during his time, and people, you know, say it was unlucky that he failed. So, today is the end of Michael Owen's presidency. And if you remember, he'll always be remembered by the implosion in the Beirut port in 2020 and the financial crises and protests that began in 2019. They needed him out and they pushed him out. Remember, he's the son of a farmer from Beirut, right? He began his path to the presidency um, during the Civil War. In Lebanon, and he served commander of Lebanon's army and head of one of the two rival governments there. And then he came back to Beirut after 15 years being in exile, after the Syrian forces withdrew under, you know, because the United Nations had pressured them uh, after the 2005 assassination of Prime Minister Rafiq al-Hariri. So, you know, in 2006, his um party called the Free Patriotic Movement, um, they claim formed an alliance with Hezbollah. Remember, this is a Christian guy and they're saying that he formed an alliance with Hezbollah. That sounds like Bush, Obama speak. Considering that I was part of the HFIG, I can tell you that's fake news. But, Owen had credited Hezbollah for their useful role in his acting as, as a deterrent against Israeli attacks during the discussions they had for the maritime discussions. Now, thinking back to maritime, I want you guys to remember when Turkey just decided that they're just gonna start patrolling Libya's waters with no permission. They actually had permission from the UN, but not from the people of Libya. The borders in the water are also very important. And because Hezbollah was present, it would, You know it caused israel to stop pushing because you know they were doing the whole iron dome thing and whatnot so that's basically it um but his exit actually leaves a power vacuum and that should be concerning to everyone having lebanon in such financial distress uh with no leader uh, this allows france and you're going to see macron come in and encroach And try to take and make Lebanon, once again, a French territory. That's how these people work. They're corrupt. They go in for the jugular when they think they're weak. Now let's look at the historic deal that was done with Israel and Lebanon in regards to maritime. This is really important because remember, I had annotated how. With Libya, Turkey was allowed to kind of just parade around the Mediterranean like they own the place and then they started to do like energy exploration and this is the foundation of their agreement. So he signs this and then four days later leaves. Pretty interesting.
12: Wait till you see... The leaders Le- of West Asian nations, Lebanon and Israel, have signed a landmark US-brokered agreement on their maritime boundary. The historic deal marks a diplomatic feat and is a departure from decades of hostility, opening the way to offshore energy exploration. Lebanese President Michael Aoun signed a letter approving the deal in Bada, followed by Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid's signature in Jerusalem. The handover ceremony will take place at a UN peacekeeping base uh, in Nakara along the border. In a statement, Yair Lapid said, and I quote, It is not every day that an enemy country recognises the state of Israel in view of the international community. Ayoun, however, played down any wider breakthrough and said in a statement that the deal has no political dimensions or impacts. That contradicts Lebanon's foreign policy. Though the two nations technically remain at war, the Israeli Prime Minister hailed the deal as a tremendous achievement and Lebanese negotiator Elias Boussab said that the deal marks the beginning of a new era between the two sides. The accord removes one source of potential conflict between Israel and Iranian-backed Lebanese group Hezbollah, and it could help alleviate Lebanon's economic crisis. The deal also comes at a time when elections are due in both Israel and Lebanon. The US envoy who mediated the negotiations said that he expects the agreement to hold even amidst changes in leadership in both nations. Well, Lebanon and Israel have both voiced satisfaction with having settled a dispute peacefully. Prospects for a wider diplomatic breakthrough appear remote though. For more on this, okay, first of all, we'll cross to our guest on this, who is the uh, coordinator of the Takadon political party. He joins us live from Beirut in Lebanon. Thank you so much for joining us. Is this deal likely to hold even with these changes in leadership that could come?
15: Uh, Yes, definitely. On the Lebanese side, uh, there is uh, uh, no intention to uh, undo uh, the deal that has been signed between Lebanon and Israel and brokered by the US uh, administration. And what we're hearing on the Israeli side that the US has guarantees that this deal will hold on even if there is a change in leadership in
12: Israel. What are the prospects? Are there any prospects that this could lead to a wider diplomatic breakthrough between the two countries, given the history? Uh,
15: Look, uh, the Lebanese government was very clear that this is only a deal to unlock the potentials of the resources, of the offshore resources, oil and gas mainly, and it has nothing to do beyond uh, that. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, today there is a delimitation of maritime borders between Israel that is not recognized by Lebanon and the Lebanese government. And therefore it's up to anyone to decide if this is recognition or not of the Israelis. But there is a deal today that that does that delimitation between Lebanon uh, and Israel. And I think uh, going forward, if Lebanon is serious about unlocking this potential of resources, it will be faced with important questions And important investment questions about like these resources, if these resources exist in Lebanon, how to market it, where to market it, how to sell it and what kind of infrastructure to be used. And if the companies would say that the only infrastructures are the one existing in the eastern Mediterranean and therefore where Israel is present. So then the Lebanese government needs to decide if it wants to join the regional platform set up or it wants to go solo. And if it wants to go solo, maybe it would be very difficult to invest in these projects. And therefore, I think going going forward, there will be some kind of forced normalization because of the
12: realities of the oil and gas business. That that leads me to my next question. What kind of impact do you think this could have economically? Do you see it as all positive? I look, all
15: positive. It's uh, it's uh, too much to say all positive. You know that this political class, the same political class, was the source of the uh, economic collapse in the country and the financial collapse of the country because of entrenched corruption in the system and the institutions. Today, you have. The state capture, you have of corrupt people running the country institutionally. We, have, we are weak. Rule of law is non-existent. All of that is impossible to, for oil and gas to bring any kind of prosperity. There are uh, there are huge uh, challenges, and there are red flags, and there are risks of uh, of that oil and gas benefit with what would not benefit the people of the country. So I think uh, maybe, maybe this is the right uh, right step. Uh, Forward, But I think at the same time, the Lebanese population need to pressure the Lebanese authorities to do the uh, reforms that are required to build back the institution uh, to free the the institutions and the public administration from corruption and to really uh, move on with uh, uh, good management of the sector and the institutions so that they would see the benefits. So, So there's a huge task on the shoulders of the Lebanese population to hold the political class accountable.
12: Laurie Hayteyan in uh, Beirut, thank you so much for your analysis. Uh, Let's now go to our report from uh, Gadi Francis. For
13: Lebanon, the country I'm currently standing in, Thursday 27th October 2022, will be marked as the beginning of a new era. This is what Lies Bousab, the deputy speaker of the parliament, the head Lebanese negotiator, had to say earlier at the presidential palace right after the Lebanese President Michel Aoun signed the letter that agrees on a landmark U.S. broker deal between Lebanon and Israel. Now the maritime border dispute has been going on for decades. These two countries don't recognize each other. This is why the deal has has been touted as historic. Now there's a lot at stake, billions of dollars in oil and gas. But the question is for a country in political void like Lebanon, where the presidency has a vague future. The government has a vague future. Who'd actually implement this deal and actually help Lebanon benefit from it? The question is for the future to answer. Until then, we'll be reporting from Beirut. Radi Francis for WeOn. World is One.
0: In my opinion, this deal that was just signed is actually another way to box in Turkey that has been freely parading around the Mediterranean doing their gas exploration. Watch how everyone starts to move against Turkey, slowly. As we can see here, Putin met with Azerbaijan's leader to discuss what they want to discuss in a good setting along with Armenia. This is very key considering Armenia and Azerbaijan have been at war for forever and a day and i think it's important that we understand why let's take a look at a map this map shows you that russia borders with a lot of these nations right but the key one here that i want you to focus on is the border that armenia shares with iran remember iran just sold drones to putin putin has Azerbaijan reliant on them for energy. Iran is reliant on Russia for energy transport. Turkey is reliant somewhat on Russia for energy transport. Turkey is also reliant on Iran and Azerbaijan for it. But as you will see in the next video, the conflict they have is a little bit more complicated than people make it. It's not that simple. This is why I tell you, Russian will, the Russian army will come down from the north and they're going to take Erdogan out.
16: At midnight on 13th September 2022, people in Armenia woke up to the sound of bomb attacks. These attacks were by Azerbaijan. Today, I'm going to tell you about the past, present and future the ongoing conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Armenia celebrated its 31st Independence Day on 21st September. But with constant attacks and a threat of invasion, Armenia seems far from celebrating its independence. As per the government of Armenia, 13th September attacks led to the death of at least 135 soldiers. Azerbaijan's attack has caused loss of civil property. Communities in Armenia are undergoing torture by the Azerbaijan military. Both the countries are accusing each other of attacks. But from reports, it's clear that Armenia appears to be facing a heavier casualty, specifically in the past few years. Their last war was in 2020. Both countries were at war for over 45 days, until Armenia surrendered to Azerbaijan. And the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict did not start in 2020. It goes back to the Soviet era. In 1918, on 26th May, both Azerbaijan and Armenia claimed independence and staking a claim also to territories that were historically and ethnically theirs. These territorial disputes then led to a war between Armenia-Azerbaijan in 1918 and 1920. The major area of conflict was nagorno karabakh The area is a part of Azerbaijan, but the majority population were Armenians. In 1922, the Soviet era is established. Armenia and Azerbaijan become constituent states. Until the Soviet Union collapsed in the 1980s, Armenia and Azerbaijan had peaceful relationship. Amid the collapse of the Soviet Union, Nagorno-Karabakh voted in favor of Armenia. Azerbaijan called it a separatist movement, but Armenia decided to support it. This unleashed a full-blown war between the two countries. Tens of thousands of people died and up to a million were displaced. Ethnic cleansing and massacres were committed on both parts. But most of those displaced in the war were Azerians. Armenia eventually managed to gain control of a major part of nagorno karabakh but that resulted in the displacement of more Azerians from that area. That was until the Soviet Union or Russia so to say then later decided to broker a ceasefire deal. Russia was a former ally to Armenia but also had good relations with Azerbaijan. After Russia's deal, nogarno karabakh remained to be a part of the Azerbaijan. They also established a line of contact that separated nogarno karabakh Since then, peace talks were mediated by OSCE. Set up in 1992, it was headed by Russia, France and the United States of America. The conflict gets further complicated due to geopolitics. NATO member Turkey decided to call Azerbaijan as independent in 1991, but not just coming in support of Azerbaijan. It also closed its borders to Armenia, but the clashes continued in 2016, Armenia and Azerbaijan fought again. This time the war lasted for four days. The clashes started when Azerbaijan launched troops to reoccupy the region of Armenia in the Nagorno-Karabakh in 2018. Armenia underwent a peaceful revolution, sweeping longtime ruler Shahrzeh Sargsyan from power. After the Pashya became the Prime Minister of Armenia, he agreed with Azerbaijan to de-escalate the tensions. But later, in fact as recent as 2019, Prime Minister of Armenia, Pashya, assembled a crowd in Korbok area and asked them to shout, ''Artsok is Armenia!'' This angered the Azerbaijan citizens. Later in July 2020, both forces clashed again. The fight started from 12th of July and continued until 18th of July 2020. They used artillery, tanks and drones. Both sides reporting death of soldiers and junior rank officers. Later in September 2020, both forces clashed again. Heavy fire broke out along the line of contact in Nagorno-Karabakh. It then led to Azerbaijan ordering a martial law. On October 9, the same year in 2020, the United Nations High Commissioner for the Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, appealed for an urgent ceasefire, citing civilian sufferings in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict zone. She also raised concerns about overpopulated areas that were becoming targets for the heavy weapon attacks. On 17th October, a new ceasefire agreement was announced by the Armenian and Azerbaijani foreign ministers following phone calls between Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and his counterpart. Lavrov urged both countries to follow the ceasefire, but both countries say that the other one has violated the protocol deal. Armenia surrendered, Azerbaijan won, Azerbaijan gained control of five cities, four towns 240 villages and the entire Azerbaijan-Iran border. So, by now, Azerbaijan has not only won over many parts, but also has managed to find a corridor through Armenia, right in that area. The clashes then continued even in 2022. Azerian military targeted up to 23 locations in Armenia's Swainik, ghigarkunik and Zor provinces, which are located south of the country and borders Azerbaijan. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, hosted the foreign ministers of both countries. This was the first meeting after 170 soldiers officially had died in the line of duty. But despite this recent meeting with the United States of America, the border issues of Armenia and Azerbaijan still remain unsettled.
17: For more information,
0: it's evident that the history surrounding that region is very complicated. But now is where you're gonna see the closing from Russia, from Iran, and even Israel if you're putting the puzzle pieces together. So while Iran has just emerged as this big super drone creator alleging that their drones go farther and faster than Turkey's, Russia can easily turn their back in regards to what's best for their nation considering Turkey is defying what Russia wants to do with Ukraine.
8: Islamic Republic of Iran is best known in the world for its traditional Islamic laws and Sharia-based government. But why they support Christian Armenia or Muslim Azerbaijan? Exactly why they have double standards? Well, it has few reasons. Despite each of them being the only two Shia Muslim majority-led countries in the world, Iran holds an understandable pair of Azerbaijan because of its ethnic Azerbaijani areas at the north. The fact that somewhere about 15 million or so Azerbaijanis within Iran, which is even more Azerbaijanis than within the state of Azerbaijan itself, and about 17% of Iran's total population. The second president of independent Azerbaijan publicly argued that Azerbaijanis of Iran should be united within the state of Azerbaijan and that Iran had no right to rule over them. This means that despite their religious similarities, there is a degree of ethno-nationalist tension between the Azerbaijan and Iran. And it made all the worse by Azerbaijan's close relationship with another Iranian enemy, Israel. United over the mutual concern of Iran, Azerbaijan supplies around 40% of Israel's crude oil import. And Israel has is recently become the largest provider of weapons and arms of Azerbaijan. Between 2016 and 2020, leading up to the second Nagorno-Karabakh war, Israel provided nearly 70% of all the major armed imports. That, Azerbaijan's military was buying up. Also, Iran is a pretty good friend of Russia and Armenia is also loyal to its former master. On that way, they are friends too. In short, despite their religious similarity, the allies and the ethno-nationalist tensions between them made the relations between Iran and Azerbaijan worse and make Armenia a closer ally of Iran
6: thousands of lives, and then in early September, the Ukrainians launched a hugely successful counter-offensive that reclaimed thousands of square kilometers of occupied territory from them in a matter of days. Then, just two days after that Ukrainian breakthrough here, Azerbaijan decided to test the international waters and attack Armenia to see what the Russians would do for their supposed ally. And the answer was effectively nothing, which doesn't bode very well for Armenia's future as a state. You see, Armenia and Azerbaijan have been arch-rivals for decades now, ever since their independence from the Soviet Union more than 30 years ago. They have fought two major wars against each other and countless smaller skirmishes, and the violence between them is all but guaranteed to continue going on for the foreseeable future. And in order to understand why, you need to understand what both of them are actually fighting for, and how they're actually fighting for it. Their 21st century rivalry mostly revolves around the unresolved and bitter status of this mountainous region surrounded by Azerbaijan, known as Nagorno-Karabakh. Every country in the world officially recognizes Nagorno-Karabakh as a province of Azerbaijan, and if you use apps like Google Maps, this is the simple reality that you'll be presented with. But in reality, Azerbaijan only has limited control over the province today because the majority of people who live there are ethnic Armenians who declared their own independent breakaway state more than 30 years ago. The so called Republic of Artsakh. More than 99% of Artsakh's population is currently Armenian, and through a very narrow corridor that's only three miles wide connected to Armenia proper, Artsakh effectively acts as a de facto extension of the Armenian state itself, despite Nagorno-Karabakh being claimed and recognized by everyone as a part of Azerbaijan. This is a territorial and ethnic dispute that is difficult to negotiate diplomatically, and it was set up that way either on purpose or accidentally nearly a century ago by the Soviet Union. Both Armenians and Azerbaijanis have long historic and cultural claims to Nagorno-Karabakh that go back centuries with a lot of fighting. But the recent dispute began after the Soviet Union took over both countries in the early 1920s. With both of them under the direct control of Moscow, they weren't really allowed to fight anymore over the status of Nagorno-Karabakh and the dispute was shelved for decades. Shortly after their conquest, the Soviets initially decided to incorporate Karabakh into Armenia, since its population at the time was estimated to be 94% Armenian. But Joseph Stalin disagreed, and with a stroke of his pen, personally decided to keep Karabakh a part of Azerbaijan, with a high degree of local autonomy. And in doing so, whether on purpose or by accident, Stalin created a sort of dead man switch here so long as the greater soviet union existed and continued exerting control over both armenia and azerbaijan the status of an autonomous ethnically armenian karabakh within azerbaijan wouldn't really ever matter but were the soviet union to ever collapse in the future for whatever reason or lose political control over certain member states karabakh's political status inside of azerbaijan would be almost certain to generate tension and conflict between the newly independent armenia and azerbaijan perhaps ideally, that would be enough to keep them distracted and weak fighting each other, while someone in Moscow steadily worked towards putting the shattered pieces of the empire back together again. And sure enough, within 70 years of Stalin's fateful decision in the late 1980s, the Soviet Union was collapsing and the status of Nagorno-Karabakh was suddenly becoming very important again. The local Armenian-controlled government of Karabakh voted to be transferred over to Armenia in 1989, which both Azerbaijan and the Soviet Union rejected. Then a couple years later, in December 1991, just days before the Soviet Union officially dissolved, an independence referendum was held in Nagorno-Karabakh that was boycotted by the local Azerbaijanis who also lived there. The Armenians of the territory overwhelmingly voted in favor of independence and created the breakaway secessionist Republic of Artsakh, to which Azerbaijan disagreed and considered illegitimate and responded militarily. Armenia quickly supported Artsakh, the Russians began supplying the Armenians, and a full-scale war exploded between both sides that would last for the next three years. After the dust had settled and after more than 30,000 casualties, Russian-supported Armenia had emerged from this first war as the decisive victor. Artsakh's de facto control over the entire Nagorno-Karabakh province was established, while Armenian troops occupied about a further 9% of Azerbaijan's legally recognized territory outside of it. But over the next 30 years, the tide would gradually shift further and further over to Azerbaijan's favor, because Azerbaijan ended up having something that Armenia doesn't. A lot of oil and gas that the West would desperately want. Located primarily offshore in the Caspian Sea, Azerbaijan has an amount of oil and gas reserves that are similar to Norway. But unlike Norway, these reserves were always difficult to get out onto the world market for two reasons. One, they were completely controlled by the Soviet Union, and two, the Caspian Sea, where all of these reserves are located in, is completely landlocked. Where the only possible water-based routes to the World Ocean is through the Russian-controlled Volga River and their canal system leading to either the Black Sea, the White Sea, or the Baltic. That meant that in order to avoid Russia, the only means of getting Azerbaijan's oil and gas resources out to the global market was either by truck, rail, air, or pipeline all of which required expensive infrastructure and investment that impoverished Azerbaijan didn't really possess in the early 1990s. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the political barrier to entry was lifted, and that got the interest of the major Western oil and gas companies for the first time. Beginning in the 1990s, Western energy companies spearheaded by BP began aggressively investing billions into Azerbaijan's oil and gas infrastructure, culminating with the Baku-Tbilisi-Sehan, or BTC, crude oil pipeline that only began operation in 2006. This pipeline, of course, was built to strategically circumvent Armenia, and it enables Azerbaijan by Johnny crude oil to bypass both Armenia and Russia by traveling to the Turkish port of Sehan, where it can then be loaded up on tankers and shipped off to Europe in the global market. EP continues to own the controlling share of 30.1% ownership over this pipeline, while other Western energy companies from Hungary, Norway, Italy, France, Japan, and the United States control a further 36% of it with the United States military agreeing to watch over the pipeline's security with UAVs. Today, this pipeline is capable of transporting 1 million barrels of oil a day to tankers on the eastern Mediterranean, theoretically enough to meet 7% of the European Union's oil demand if at all headed that way. But this oil pipeline wasn't the only one being built here with Western financing. Immediately parallel to the BTC crude oil pipeline is the South Caucasus pipeline that transports natural gas, which also includes BEP as the largest shareholder at 28.8% ownership. Combined with the Trans-Anatolian gas pipeline across Turkey and the Trans-Adriatic gas pipeline across Greece, Albania, and into Italy, these pipelines collectively cost around $45 billion to construct and form what's known as the Southern Gas Corridor capable of supplying Europe with 10.5 billion cubic meters of gas per year from Azerbaijan's gigantic gas fields in the Caspian. This network was only completed two years ago in early 2020, and it'll be capable of meeting around 2% of the whole European Union's natural gas demand, serving as an important source of diversification away from Russia's gas supply. And as the years passed on and Azerbaijan's oil and gas sales to the west began to mount, the country grew exponentially wealthier than their rival in Armenia. For 14 years between 2000 and 2014, Azerbaijan held the title for the fastest-growing economy in the world. It transformed into one of the world's wealthiest petrostates, where the revenues from oil and gas finance around 60% of the government's total budget and they strategically began using this newfound wealth to shovel enormous piles of cash into their military in order to one day fight Armenia again and reverse the outcome of the war back in the early 1990s. By 2020, Azerbaijan's economy, population, and geographic size were each well over three times that of Armenia, and their military budget was more than double. And not only did they have all of these advantages, but they also had the advantage of better geopolitical relations in their neighborhood as well. Turkey, on the other side of Armenia, is a very close ally of Azerbaijan. Both the Turks and the Azeris are considered an ethnically and linguistically Turkic people. Turkey was the very first country in the world to recognize Azerbaijan's independence from the Soviet Union in 1991, and they've maintained a close alliance structure ever since. With the former president of Azerbaijan, Haydar Aliyev, even going so far as to describing them as one nation, two states. They maintain an active mutual defense pact in case one is attacked while Azerbaijan has used their oil and gas revenues to become a huge customer of Turkish military hardware, purchasing as much as $200 million worth of Turkish weapons and equipment a year, including scores of their advanced Bayraktar TB2 drones that have seen huge success in Ukraine against the Russians. Meanwhile, Turkey's relationship with Armenia is icy at best and hostile at worst. There is obviously lingering resentment over the 1915 Armenian Genocide carried out by Ottoman Turkey, in which around 1 million Armenians were killed, and which Turkey still to this day refuses to actually recognize. Further, almost immediately after Armenia's independence, the Turks supported Azerbaijan in the first war over Nagorno-Karabakh and shut down their entire land border with Armenia and refused to let anyone cross it, a situation which has continued into the present day for more than 30 years now. Armenia has a troubled relationship with Turkey, though, in a similar manner to how Azerbaijan has a troubled relationship with Iran. Despite each of them being the only two Shia Muslim-majority-led countries in the world, Iran holds an understandable fear of Azerbaijan because of this. The fact that there exists somewhere around 15 million or so Azerbaijanis within Iran, which is even more Azerbaijanis than within the state of Azerbaijan itself, at around 17% of Iran's total population. Even though he only served in office for a single year between 1992 and 1993, the second president of independent Azerbaijan publicly argued that the Azerbaijanis of Iran should be united within the state of Azerbaijan, and that Iran had no right to rule over them. This means that despite their religious similarities, there is a degree of ethno-nationalist tension between Azerbaijan and Iran, and it's made all the worse by Azerbaijan's close relationship with another Iranian enemy, Israel. United over their mutual concern of Iran, Azerbaijan supplies around 40% of Israel's crude oil imports, while Israel has recently become the largest provider of weapons and arms to Azerbaijan. Between 2016 and 2020, leading up to the second Nagorno-Karabakh war, Israel provided nearly 70% of all the major arms imports that Azerbaijan's military was buying up. And though both governments publicly deny this, Azerbaijan has also allegedly granted the Israeli Air Force access to several of their own air bases, which they could hypothetically use, to strike targets deep in Iran in a faster manner than they could from their own bases back in Israel. So, with Turkey, Israel, and the West all tied to the more autocratic Azerbaijan for ethnic, economic, and geopolitical reasons, and Azerbaijan's tilt away from Russian influence, that's left the more democratic Armenia in a very difficult geopolitical position, with little other alternative than to seek closer alliances with two of the world's greatest autocracies, Iran and their former master to the north, Russia. In 1992, very shortly after independence, Armenia agreed to join the CSTO, essentially the Russian-led version of NATO, consisting of various other post-Soviet states who remained fairly loyal to Moscow. At the same time, several thousand Russian troops have been permanently deployed at a base here in Gyumri ever since the end of the Cold War, one of the largest overseas military bases operated by the Russian Armed Forces. Russia sells weapons and arms to Armenia at a discount rate, while the Russian state owns interests in all of Armenia's major railways and infrastructure. Essentially, Armenia is overwhelmingly dependent upon Russia for their survival. And therefore, Armenia sort of already acts like a de facto outpost of Moscow. When Azerbaijan finally felt confident enough in 2020 to militarily assert their claims to Nagorno-Karabakh and their lands under Armenian occupation, Armenia triggered the CSTO's version of Article 5, and appealed to the Russians and the rest of the alliance for direct military assistance. Russia refused the call, citing that since Armenia proper wasn't under any direct attack from Azerbaijan, the mutual defense treaty didn't apply. So, after two months of war, with Armenia receiving little to no international support from anyone abroad, and with Azerbaijan heavily supplied with advanced military equipment from Turkey and Israel, it was the Azerbaijanis who decisively defeated the Armenians this time, completely reversing the de facto boundary set after the first war ended back in 1994. With rapid Azerbaijani gains and after a Russian military helicopter was shot down under dubious circumstances, the Russians apparently decided to intervene diplomatically and allegedly threaten the use of force against Azerbaijan if they refused to cooperate. They ended up cooperating, and in the ensuing ceasefire agreement negotiated with Russia's mediation, Azerbaijan recaptured all of their territory outside of Nagorno-Karabakh that the Armenians had been occupying since the 1990s. And they were left with a significant control over Nagorno-Karabakh itself as well to boot. Artsakh's de facto control over Nagorno-Karabakh was cut down a size and a narrow corridor just three miles wide guarded by Russian peacekeepers was established between what remained of Artsakh and Armenia proper enabling Armenians to continue traveling between the two safely and at the same time another corridor free of Armenian checkpoints was supposed to be established for Azerbaijan across Armenian territory here linking the Azerbaijani mainland with their large exclave here called Nakhchivan. Were this to be implemented, Turkey would also finally have a continuous land-based route into Azerbaijan proper itself. But, much to the ire of both Azerbaijan and Turkey, in the two years now since that ceasefire agreement was made, the Armenians have still not granted them this corridor and have been showing no indication of ever doing so. Of course, Azerbaijan's long-term objectives here are to regain control over the entirety of Nagorno-Karabakh and eliminate the Armenian secessionists there in Artsakh, while simultaneously guaranteeing some kind of access or corridor through Armenia towards their large exclave over in Nakhchivan. While, on the other hand, Armenia would like to prevent both of those things from happening. But Armenia is continuously finding itself in a worse and worse strategic position all the time. In February 2022, Armenia's greatest protector, Russia, started a massive war of conquest with hundreds of thousands of soldiers when they invaded Ukraine. In response, the European Union began the process of abandoning the Russians for their oil and gas supplies and began seeking alternative suppliers who could up their production, alternatives like Azerbaijan. In July, the European Union signed a major new gas deal with Azerbaijan where they would more than double their exports of gas to the EU within five years by 2027 which will ultimately end up replacing around 9% of all the gas that the Russians were exporting to the EU just before their invasion of Ukraine. And so, confident in the fact that Europe was now becoming more reliant on their gas to replace the Russian supply, and in the fact that the Russians were getting distracted and bogged down in Ukraine, as evidenced by their pulling of hundreds of troops away from their Armenian base in Gyumri, Azerbaijan must have felt very confident that neither Europe nor Russia Russia would oppose them if they attacked Armenia again. And that is almost certainly why they did in September, immediately after the hugely successful Ukrainian counteroffensive. And Azerbaijan was right just like they did two years previously back in 2020, the Armenians once again triggered the CSTO military alliance for help, and Russia once again refused the call, essentially shattering the credibility of the CSTO as an actual useful defense alliance. And even though the United States helped to negotiate a ceasefire, Washington has so far not made any demands for the Azerbaijani forces to leave the territory of Armenia proper that they're now occupying. With Russia distracted by military catastrophe in Ukraine, Europe's refusal to jeopardize their vital energy relationship with Azerbaijan, Turkey's longtime support of Azerbaijan, and Iran currently consumed by internal protests and revolts, the future looks very bleak for Armenia's objectives and survival. Azerbaijan will be emboldened in the current political and strategic atmosphere to continue attacking Armenia and exert more gains in Nagorno-Karabakh and establish their desired corridor over to Nakhchivan. And if Armenia desires to resist, they may be left with little other choice but to actually become even further integrated with Russia, since they really have no other possible alternative, despite how terrible and unreliable of a partner Russia has been to them. This could, potentially, in the future include the establishment of an Armenian-Russian Union State, like currently exists between Russia and Belarus, or even a full-on absorption of Armenia into the Russian Federation outright. The fact that as many as 70,000 Russians, most of them young men escaping from Putin's mobilization order, have fled to Armenia since the invasion of Ukraine began doesn't really negatively impact that possibility. Russians now make up by far the largest ethnic minority in Armenia and the current situation has almost certainly given Russian security organizations like the FSB the opportunity to infiltrate their own agents into the crowd of Russians. Keep a very close eye on Armenia and Azerbaijan going forward because it is very likely to become very interesting and very dangerous. In times of international conflict and uncertainty such as these, government restrictions make certain parts of the internet impossible to access. YouTube itself is currently blocked by six countries across Africa and Asia, where this video will simply be impossible to view, while six other countries have blocked it in the past, including Armenia. And it's not just YouTube, either. In the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Russian government decided to indefinitely block Western social media sites like Facebook and Twitter nationwide. At the same time, and in compliance with Western financial sanctions, Apple removed Vkontakte from their app store worldwide, blocking the largest Russian social media platform to Apple users around the world. Since 2020, India has blocked TikTok over national security concerns, since TikTok is owned by their rival China, while even the United States has contemplated doing the same thing. And during the 2020 war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan temporarily restricted access to basically everything from YouTube to Facebook to TikTok and Twitter. When wars are declared and sides are drawn, the casualties now extend to the internet and contact with the opposite side your country has decided is now the enemy becomes ever more difficult.
11: Let's talk about a mountain territory that people are killing each other over. It's called Nagorno-Karabakh and the fights between Armenia and Azerbaijan.
9: A flare-up of one of the world's oldest conflicts is raising fears of all-out war.
11: Soldiers and civilians are being killed.
9: Life has moved underground in Stepanakhet. Once the machine of war has
18: started, it gets incredibly dangerous. These two sides have very long-range weapons.
9: So why
11: are they fighting? How long has it been going on for? And why are countries like Turkey involved? The first shots were fired in July before all-out war broke out at the end of September. It's been the worst fighting there in 25 years, but the grievances go back generations. At the heart of the dispute is a region called Nagorno-Karabakh, and here it is in a crowded neighborhood known as the South Caucasus. Nagorno-Karabakh lies entirely within Azerbaijan's borders. It's internationally recognized as being part of the country, full stop. Here's the thing, it's controlled by ethnic Armenians, backed by Armenia. And surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh are lands that Armenia controls. The UN calls it an occupation. Then you've got all the big neighbors, like Iran, which borders both. Turkey, it's long been an ally of Azerbaijan. And then there's Russia. It supplies weapons to both Armenia and Azerbaijan. We'll get into all the geopolitics later. But first, here's what Nagorno-Karabakh looks like. It makes up 5% of Azeri territory, but almost twice that much land around it is controlled by Armenian forces. About 150,000 people live here. It holds its own elections and governs itself. But right now, it's a war zone. Many people are living in their basements because of the shelling. And local officials say half the people who live there have been forced to leave. The thing about this region is that it's been fought over for a long time. Iran had control in the mid 18th century, then the Russians took over. The British and the Ottomans were in there too. But a key date in all of this is 1920. That's when Armenia and Azerbaijan went to war over Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan, backed by Russia, got control. A year later, it was promised to the Armenians, but Stalin turned around and made sure Azerbaijan held onto it. By 1988, the Soviet Union was crumbling, and the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh took advantage of the power vacuum and voted to join Armenia. So when the Soviet Union finally fell apart in 1991, so did whatever was left of peace in the South Caucasus.
18: What the collapse of the Soviet Union did was then to militarize this conflict. Uh, Both sides suddenly got much bigger weapons. 1992
11: was when the fighting really intensified, right after Armenians and Nagorno-Karabakh declared independence. Both sides accuse each other of atrocities. Tens of thousands of local Azeris and Armenians were killed. A million people had to leave their homes. In the end, the Armenians pushed Azerbaijan's forces out of Nagorno-Karabakh, seized territories around it, and it all finally ended in a ceasefire in 1994. That ceasefire has been ignored by both Armenia and Azerbaijan over the years. And the sense of injustice over what happened in that war the killings and mass displacement hasn't gone away.
18: This conflict has always been kind of put on the back burner. There's always the danger of some terrible incident causing a a new escalation, in which case things could get totally out of control given the huge amount of of weaponry we have on both sides.
11: And now both sides are tapping into that anger. It's full-scale war all over again. Trenches, tanks, Air attacks.
9: Air raid sirens wailed across this city as a barrage of rockets and mortars rained down.
11: Azeri forces have been attacking Nagorno-Karabakh's main city, Stepanakert. Armenian men there have been signing up to fight back. Exact numbers are next to impossible to come by. But soldiers and civilians on both sides have been killed. Armenian forces have been attacking Azerbaijan too. The border city of Ganja has been among the hardest hit.
14: The second rocket hit the the other street. And uh, there are also two other wounded people over there.
11: So how and why did the fighting start up again? The answer depends entirely on who you ask. Armenia says Azerbaijan attacked first. Azerbaijan says it acted in self-defense. What's clear is that it's not exactly an even fight. Our colleagues at AJ Labs put together these infographics to show just how much more Azerbaijan spends on its military, how many more soldiers it has, and how much more are showing it off. This is an actual music video released by the Azeri military are rallying their people too. But what's making particular fight different from all the other skirmishes is that other countries are getting involved in a big way.
17: Part
11: of Turkey's connection to Azerbaijan is cultural the Azeris are a Turkic-speaking
4: people. We call ourselves one nation, two states. What happens there, of course, is of direct concern to us. Uh, it affects uh, you know, our borders, it affects our region. It's
11: got the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh looking for outside help, too.
2: If uh, there is also a direct involvement of Turkey, and I don't see that Turkey is going to pull out from the region, we have to somehow, you know, change some geopolitical approaches of our state, further strengthen our relations with brother countries, Russia, United States, Iran, and China. So
11: how involved is Turkey in the actual fighting? Well, that's difficult to pin down. Azerbaijan's using military drones supplied by Turkey and Israel, and Turkey's accused of recruiting Syrian fighters to help against the Armenians, which Turkey and Azerbaijan flatly deny.
4: There is no evidence of the so-called Syrian fighters going to Azerbaijan or facilitated by us. Uh, There is evidence of Lebanese-Armenian individuals, I guess, or militia, uh, you know, going there.
11: So what's in it for Turkey and Azerbaijan, beyond trying to get back what they see as Azeri land? Well, something to consider is that this region is rich in oil and gas. Pipelines snake across the region. Oil and gas make up 90% of Azerbaijan's exports. And as for Turkey, Azerbaijan is now its biggest supplier of natural gas. So understandably, any instability here is bad for business all around. Azerbaijan accuses the Armenians of attacking a major oil pipeline, which Armenia denies. One thing's for sure, Azerbaijan's oil and gas has come in handy.
18: That's given Azerbaijan the revenues to build up a new army after it had lost a humiliating defeat back in the 1990s.
11: The other reason Turkey and Azerbaijan say they support the offensive on Nagorno-Karabakh is that they think the dispute has been allowed to fester. And now is the time to resolve it once and for all.
4: Our main concern uh, is to find uh, a diplomatic solution to this. But as I said, for this peace to be sustainable, it needs to be based on a plan to end the occupation.
11: It's true that over the years there have been lots of negotiations. The UN's put out a bunch of resolutions to stop the fighting, And all the big international organizations have weighed in too, including something called the Minsk Group, led by Russia, France, and the United States. They came close to getting the two sides to agree on a peace plan in 2007, but it fell apart.
18: The two sides basically never really fully accepted that plan. They were always looking to see if they could just improve their options.
11: But like all the other plans so far, they've failed to overcome that deep mistrust.
2: A ceasefire
4: is good, certainly good, but the problem must be solved. A ceasefire must solve the problem that is our independence. One can
18: completely understand the Armenians saying that we are the majority population, we've lived here for centuries, we're surrounded by Armenian churches and cemeteries, and we don't trust Azerbaijan to rule over us. And you can also completely understand Azerbaijan saying, to take away uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is to kind of tear a massive chunk out of the middle of our territory, and that's completely unacceptable.
11: Both sides accuse each other of terrible things. Massacres, ethnic cleansing, and taking land. So it's hard to make peace. Ceasefires only pause the fighting. They don't resolve it, and history has shown that. With this story, there are plenty of accusations and denials on both sides. And as always, with our show Start Here, we cover the basics, but we've got a lot more coverage on aljazeera.com and all the latest on our live blog. I'll see you next
0: week. So, Iran has opened a consulate general in Armenia in southmost Armenian province, which what appears to be a direct message to Azerbaijan, that it's backing, you know, Armenia and not Turkey, since Turkey is sending reinforcement to Azerbaijan, considering Remember, the Turkish people conducted genocide. They attempted to eradicate the only Christian population within the Ottoman Empire right under their noses. So this is a a very big deal. And this is a direct provocation, not only to Azerbaijan, but also to Turkey uh you know making it clear that they will not allow the border that iran has with armenia to be disrupted and this is the problem they have because that gives them footing remember as you've seen in the previous videos there are a lot of uh, Shia Azerbaijanis that are living in the northern part of Iran, and while many say, "Oh, those need to relocate to Azerbaijan," which are less in population than those in Iran, you know these are internal, ancient wars that we shouldn't be involved in. But what we're what we're what we're seeing is that our country and the Western nations have in pushing on Putin from the north. And this is where he's gonna come from, the north to the south. And coupling with the fact what you saw earlier with Lebanon making that agreement with Israel, we should be seeing news from Libya very, very soon. And you know, Tehran has gotten heavy criticism about a lot of their actions. But in this sense, I mean, they're looking after their interests. They can't be faulted for that. And the border that they share with Armenia is important. But also, I'll remind you of the episode of that I did on September 22nd, where I showed you that the Islam faith does not hate Christians. It is actually mentioning Jesus more in the Quran than anywhere else. So, It's not a religious thing, whereas for Russia, it is religious. Russia protects Armenia due to religious persecution that happened to them because the Ottomans. Russia is a very strong historical Christian nation that does not waver to Western influence. And that indeed was one of the reasons that the Crimeans chose to break off with the European Union and Ukraine. Uh, More so on the religious front because they had started to skew, westernize, and I would say release the reins from their religion that made it more, I don't know, accepting, if one would say, uh, even though they're supposed to be historical Christians. Now, Iran is no one to joke with. If Iran has Azerbaijan at their sites, it is going to be quite nasty. I can foresee it. Coupled with the fact that they have extremely strong capabilities in unmanned air vehicles that have possible capabilities of nuclear deployment too. It'll be very, very interesting. The dynamics there are getting tighter and it's becoming more and more evident as every day goes by that um. Erdogan should be very, very, very concerned for his safety. We should go back in time and see this interview with the Armenian leader and what he said about Iran and the conflict they have.
7: What about their intervention uh, in Azerbaijan? The, they're, they're talking about their being a silent supporter of uh, Armenia against uh, Azerbaijan. There have been drills, military drills on, uh, on the border. Um, isn't this considered a kind of uh, taking, uh, be taking it beyond infrastructure and energy?
17: No, but that's their own policy. They, they, they don't interfere in Armenia. I think that whatever they feel is right or wrong, whatever is they feel as a danger happening on their borders, it's is their internal issue. I mean, uh, there are so many things that you can pay attention, okay, and say, but at the end of the day, the conflict that happened between, for, because of the Kar- Karabakh War, the second war that we had, was basically Azerbaijan against the Armenian side of Karabakh and then a Republic of Armenia, fully supported by Turkey, and there was no Iran in the game. There was Russia, and Russia was trying to be the mediator. Eventually, they brought the, the war to a ceasefire, and now they are trying to be in the as a mediator to, to solve post-war many, many questions that arise after the war. But there was no Iran.
0: Remember earlier how Iran opened up an embassy in Armenia, and that was provoking Azerbaijan and Turkey? Well, takes two to play that game
14: near its border with Iran, Zangilan International Airport is set to become a key air hub in the region. But recent clashes between Azerbaijan and Armenia is raising concerns about the area's long-term stability and its goal to become a major transport line in the South Caucasus. Let's take a look at this report. And for more on what this new airport could mean for the region, joining me now from Seattle is Janine Mitchell. She is an international development and studies expert on the South Caucasus. And Zaur Gassimov is joining me from Warsaw. He is a senior fellow at the University of Bonn. A warm welcome to both and thanks for joining me on Straight Talk. So Janine, could you talk to us about the strategic importance of this airport and how will it contribute to the region's connectivity and transport lines?
19: Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, first of all, uh, if we're talking about the development of airports in Karabakh in general, uh, it's important to acknowledge Fuzuli, which was the first airport, which was opened about a year ago. Uh, And this is an important hub for access to elsewhere in Karabakh uh, because of the number of regional roads that connect there. But when it comes to the Zengilan Airport, which of course was uh, just open. This is really the gateway to what Azerbaijan refers to as the Zangazur Corridor, which is the route through this unique region of Armenia, uh, which is envisioned to be a connecting point between mainland Azerbaijan and the enclave, or the exclave rather, of, of Nakhchivan. Uh-huh. Uh, this is a mountainous and unforgiving territory in Karabakh, uh, and airports allow for quick and easy transport in and out of the region. Very important logistically, of course, for the redevelopment of Karabakh as well. Uh, there's a lot of materials that are needed for the ambitious reconstruction program that Azerbaijan envisions. But I'd also like to acknowledge the symbolic importance of, of both uh, the Fuzuli and the Zengalan airport. These were built quickly. They are a source of pride, uh, and again, a symbol of Azerbaijan's commitment to rebuilding Karabakh. Uh, and of course, you know the support of Turkey uh, in the development of uh, of Karabakh, mm-hmm. as well as these airports, is important to acknowledge as well.
14: So, Zor, uh, besides Azerbaijan, who else stands to benefit from such infrastructural projects? I mean, are there going to be more projects, and is this viable, uh, given the some objections uh, from regional countries?
4: Um, I guess, in case if the peace would be sustainable in the region, the entire region could profit from uh, from the Bos uh, airport that uh, could boost the uh, uh, the entire region, particularly the Southern uh, Caucasus, of course, uh, but uh, but also beyond. Um, that could have an importance for the Middle East or that part of the of, of the region.
14: So. Um... Janine, how have peace negotiations, which took in uh, several European cities between Azerbaijan and Armenia, played so far? Have played out so far? Have there been any tangible outcome?
19: Well, I think you know the the most recent meetings in Prague were uh, very significant. Uh, we saw Armenia and Azerbaijan recognise each other's territorial integrity, and now we have this EU uh, observer mission which is is on the ground and I think that this is very important for um, not only showing the communities and and the countries themselves that uh, leaders are willing to meet and to work for peace uh, but you know we have some, it looks like there's going to be, uh, hopefully, a peace agreement by the end of the year. At least this is what we're hearing. Uh, and of course, you know, we've seen the engagement of both the EU and the US recently. Uh, Russia is is in the picture as well, with talk of having peace meetings um, or a meeting by the end of the month.
20: Mm-hmm. Uh,
19: so yes, I think we have some some very tangible progress um, that is a cause for optimism in light of the escalations which happened in the past month.
14: So Zaur, are you optimistic and uh, could you talk to us about uh, Russia's position here? As Janine just mentioned, a new round of peace talks um, will be held under Russia's watch. And how is this going to help that process?
4: Um, I guess I'm, I'm a bit more uh, pessimistic with this regard. Uh, because uh, we see with the recent uh, military uh, drill uh, conducted by Iran on the yes. Azerbaijani-Iranian border for the second time, uh, by the way, within of, uh, within of one year, uh, we see that uh, there are actors in the region uh, um, not quite interested in the uh, in the sustainable uh, peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and. Um, That changed somehow the geopolitical uh, geopolitical uh, view of the region. Uh, They were accommodated or adjusted to, for a couple of decades, and uh, that that shows that it's uh, much to do with this regard. But hopefully, hopefully, both sides, both Armenia and Azerbaijan, would find a way and and. uh mm-hmm. sign uh, the uh peaceful agreement
14: so janine what's really at play here in the latest round of tensions between Azerbaijan and Iran, and why have efforts to open the Zangezur economic career uh, economic corridor impacted Iran?
19: well i think beginning with uh iran's interest in the well in not seeing the zengizush uh corridor be opened uh the previously for for the past 30 years the land connection between Mm. mainland uh, Azerbaijan and Nakhchivan went through Iran. And obviously this was of strategic value to Iran. Um, You know, Iran has been a a supporter of Armenia. Uh, They have an interest in not seeing strong cooperation between Turkey and Azerbaijan. But at the same time, uh, you know, Iran would would like to maintain their uh, ability to develop a north-south transport corridor and I think there are concerns on behalf of Iran that the development of uh, uh, a route connecting through Siunik uh, and uh, the Zangazor economic yes. corridor would be uh, would impede their ability to to do that but and so this is really what's at stake
14: so but um, correct me Zaur if I'm wrong didn't Iran and Azerbaijan
0: Of course, it would impede their ability to do that. No, duh. And this is where we are seeing alliances being formed. The fact that the American diplomat spoke of Armenia with such detest makes me a little bit queasy. But I also want to remind everyone that under the Trump administration, we did acknowledge the Armenian Genocide. So coupled with that knowledge and all the history from two sides, pro-Armenia and against, take a look at the next clip.
5: Turkey is ready to join the conflict with Armenia in case of resumption of hostilities. Over the past 72 hours, the Turkish army has deployed troops of more than 50 people in the border regions with Armenia. This greatly exceeds the entire total army of the Republic of Armenia, and against the backdrop of Erdogan's statement about his readiness to support Azerbaijan, the risk of a direct armed conflict with Armenia is at a very high level. At the moment, it is known that Turkey has mobilized about 45,000 military personnel from the reserve and has already deployed military personnel in the regions bordering Armenia. In addition, about five Turkish servicemen from the regular army are stationed in the border zone with Armenia. This points to the fact that Ankara is preparing for full-scale hostilities, and such a large number of military personnel can be involved in the seizure of territory. At the moment, the situation on the border of Azerbaijan and Armenia has been stabilized, but the tension remains extremely high, since any organized provocation can turn into a full-scale armed conflict since both the Azerbaijani and Turkish armies are much better equipped than the Armenian army. At the same time, Russia is ready to assist Yerevan in the event of an attack by Turkey, and in addition, the Iranian army is currently on high alert, which has deployed at least 100 pieces of military equipment on the border.
0: Yeah, so that ending was kind of dramatic, but it is dramatic. I guess it's tragic more than anything to see thousands of years' worth of arguments and fights being perpetuated throughout time. And in the middle are these innocent citizens that wish to be able to call one place home. Our borders define our home and they define our identity. And it's 2022, and it's a real pity that we're all still struggling to do that. I mean, we're struggling to do that within our own borders, as states. The lines have been blurred on purpose. Please take a look at the next video of this young man and what he wants to call home.
20: Welcome guys to Armenian church in Isfahan, in Iran. Would you expect something like that to see in Iran? Probably not me, considering that this is an Islamic country. I'm also very surprised to see that all these cathedrals, all these churches are being very well kept. I'm gonna show you the inside of it in a second. I've been exploring there around and it's just beautiful. Check this out. This is the entrance to the church. It's already colourful with all these beautiful small bricks. And then we enter to the church itself. And you get welcomed with these beautiful and very colourful paintings on the walls. most impressive impressing thing for me are the ceilings. How beautifully they are being painted and created. So this church is from 17th century, 1664 actually. So it's actually more than 300 years old. And on the walls of the churches, you can see all the illustrations from the Bible and the colors and everything looks like so fresh. It's like it's been painted maybe yesterday or something like that. This is the main area, which we are not really allowed to go. And then you have the cross in the middle and the most impressive thing are these beautiful illustrations. And also people come here to take pictures, make selfies. And also you can read about the church on the, this thing here. Let me show you the paintings one more time. I believe these pictures are following kind of like a timeline and telling the story about uh, Jesus Christ. Beautiful, it's amazing. I'm like definitely super surprised to see this church in such a beautiful condition. And I'm very thankful to Iranian government as well to keeping this history. So right now we are in actually Armenian quarter, which is situated very close to the city center of Isfahan in Iran. And uh, it's actually a very beautiful town. There are lots of shops and the restaurants, and also lots of churches which you can experience. So I paid uh, one million uh, reals with the local money. Assalamualaikum. Good. Taxi. <laughs> taxi? No taxi, brother. I walk. No, no, thank you. So it's a beautiful quarter here. There are lots of cute cafes and restaurants and shops, and. Uh, I had a mixed feeling how I would feel coming here to Armenian Quarter. And um, as you know, or maybe you don't know, I'm from Azerbaijan originally. So it was very interesting for me to come and to see the Armenian quarter. Since I cannot go to Armenia, at least I can come to here. Because with my passport, Azerbaijanian passport. It's basically not possible to go to Armenia as a country. And if you don't know the story, backstory, let me give you a little bit of a background. Uh, So Armenia is actually the biggest enemy of Azerbaijan for the last three centuries. So we have around 30 years um, conflicts with Armenia because of the Nagorno-Karabakh. But it's kind of solved right now because our lands back, but still the tension is there. That's why I was not sure how I would feel in this town, and I know that there are lots of Armenians living here. But I'm sure that uh, I'm not gonna get kicked out from the town or something like that. And uh, yeah, I would be, I would be interested to if I meet some Armenians and actually ask them uh, where are they from, and then they will ask me back where I am from, and then I would love to see their reactions when they know from where I am from and where I come from so there are lots of like uh, small shops here maybe I can show you one of them right here which looks uh, very colorful and maybe we can go and explore inside as well this is beautiful I'm not sure if this is type of like a painting but you can definitely put this in your toilet or in the main lobby that's a beautiful painting and then we also have a uh, lots of rings here, some different accessories. I would be really curious to see who is the seller. Salam.
13: Salam.
8: Hello.
20: How are you? You are good.
13: Thanks. What's Thanks. your name? Well, what's your from?
20: Uh, I'm from Azerbaijan, from Baku. Azerbaijan. Yes. And you?
13: Yeah.
20: Isfahan. Uh, from Isfahan. Yes. You are Iranian or you're Armenian?
8: Iranian. Iranian. Uh, I'm Iranian. But yeah.
20: uh, your roots are from Armenia or no? Um,
8: uh,
14: I'm uh,
20: uh, You born here in Isfahan? Yes, yes. yes. You born here? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So nothing to do with Armenia.
13: No, no.
20: No, okay. Is there a many Armenians live here?
8: Yes, yes. Yes? Many? yes, many,
20: many. Okay, but you are not one of them. No. Okay. <laughs> I want to see your shop. What you sell?
8: Well.
0: I'm kind of late tonight, but I think it's important that I put this out. Throughout history, many people had heard rumors of wars or told of wars. And sometimes they didn't even know war was happening until it was at their door. I hope you do look back on this video and you see exactly what the problems are on a global scale that do affect us. On that note, tomorrow I'll be filing in the Supreme Court of the United States. It's a pretty big deal, and I'm very, very, very excited. I'm actually honored to have been placed with this argument. But as we all know, the argument of these machines, the arguments of equal opportunity to all citizens to run for office is imperative. I'm more than happy to have done that. For me, this is my path to redemption. This is my service to my country, out of uniform and without a title. Title of citizen is one of the most important ones we have. And as you can see from the previous clips and videos and reporting, you're kind of glad that you're in the United States of America because we actually do have a say even though for now it's just on paper the best is yet to come that's all good night